One day a long time ago, a man sat down and put pen to paper to record his frustrations at the way life was working itself out. Listen to his words, perhaps you can resonate with them as I can. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten opp oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever looked around at people in your life who have no interest in God and make no bones about not pursuing him at all and are living for themselves and seem to have no problems whatsoever? Their children always seem to be healthy. They amass wealth with no thought of spending it on anything except themselves. They seem to have no struggles in life. They quickly and easily climb the corporate ladder. The lack of sexual ethics in their life is not a curse, but it seems to be a blessing. And then we look at our own lives and we see regular struggles with finances. It's a struggle to tithe and to give to the Lord and we want to do that and yet it's a sacrifice for us. Or we feel like we're moving from one health crisis to another or one child crisis to another. It feels sometimes like we're constantly being asked by God to sacrifice and to suffer, to always give up more and more, almost as if every new morning we're being punished. Afflictions constantly with us. Maybe you feel that because of Jesus, you experience a high level of loneliness and alienation and stress at work or at school or in the neighborhood or even in your own house. And we look at our situation and we compare it to others and we think to ourselves, have I done something wrong? Did I miss the path? Am I going about this the wrong way? Surely there's got to be some easier way. Surely I must have gone awry somewhere. Now, we know that the wicked don't really have everything uh, perfect and without problems. And no, we don't really want the life that the wicked have. But still, there's that part of us that says, isn't there a better way than what I'm going through? Isn't there some way to get through this life? 
and get heaven at the end and not have this much trouble? Surely I must be doing something wrong. I remember my dad near the end of his life. He would sometimes look back on the financial sacrifices that God had asked him to make. And in moments of weakness, he would wonder aloud to me, did I make a mistake? Now, it's not that he wanted the life of wickedness, but he would look at his non-Christian friends who had no financial struggles whatsoever. Well into their retirement years, everything came easily financially to them. And he would wonder aloud, did I make a mistake? Now, of course he wanted Jesus and he never would have given up his Christianity or following after God, but he would ask, Maybe there was some way to get all of that and still have a comfortable life. Did I miss some path that I could have walked down in which I could have followed Jesus and not have had all of these struggles? Maybe that's a question you're asking. Have I chosen the wrong path here? Am I going about this in the wrong way? Am I bringing on myself or experiencing too much suffering and trouble? in this life? Well, that's the question that I think God wants to answer for us this morning. That's the issue I think he wants to address. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you need a Bible, the church would be glad for you to use one of the ones that we have put either in the rack in front of your seat or underneath your seat. And in those Bibles, it's page 982. 1 Peter 4, page 982. In just a minute, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, but let me set up the context as to where this appears in the epistle of 1 Peter. As we've looked at Peter's writing to us from the Lord, we saw at the beginning that God has chosen us for salvation, and thank God for that that God has given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We also saw that not only did God choose us for salvation, he's teaching us to obey him so that we can live lives that are worthy of the gospel. We can live lives that are worthy of the salvation that he's chosen us to receive. And thank God for that. We also saw as we moved further into the epistle, that not only does God want us to obey him, he sent us out into a world that does not yet know Jesus and told us to obey him in their presence so that he might be a blessing to them through us and bring others who do not yet know Jesus to faith. And thank God for that too. But the inevitable consequence of obeying God in a world that hates God is that there's going to be suffering. And so at this point in the letter, Peter has transitioned from God choosing us and us obeying and us living out our obedience in such a way that people come to faith to now dealing with the very specific issue. What about the fact of righteous suffering? What about the experiences that those who are followers of Jesus have where we're suffering not because of something we did wrong, but for Jesus' sake? whether it's a difficult assignment in life that God has given to us, whether it's being persecuted for our faith, whether it's going through uh, trials in health or in marriage or in 
difficult situations or at work or whatever it may be, trying to do the right thing and feeling like you're suffering as a result of it. Peter has these words to say from the Lord for this situation. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. <clears throat> but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. <clears throat> now into this situation that Peter is writing, perhaps a situation in which you are experiencing suffering for doing the right thing, he has just one command to give to us. Now there's more he's going to say about the experience of righteous suffering, about how we can help one another in the midst of it, about how we're to press on and to endure. But in this paragraph, there's only one command that God gives to you and to me. And it's in verse number one. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. That's the command. And it's the very first thing that God wants to say to those of us who are here this morning who may be experiencing trouble in this life, not because of poor choices we've made, but because we're trying to follow after Jesus, because we're trying to live in a way that's pleasing to him. Peter says the most important thing to do, the place to start is with our attitudes, to arm ourselves with the correct attitude. So if you're here this morning, and you've been asked by God to walk a difficult road in life, if you're experiencing injustices with the legal system, perhaps, if you're being persecuted or picked on for trying to live as a Christian in your workplace or in your home or in your neighborhood, Peter says the most important thing that you and I can do, the very first thing that we must do, is have the right attitude with regard to what we're going through. Now he says, arm yourselves with the right attitude. That gives the sense that it's part of a fight, that it's armor or protection in the middle of a fight, and I think that's true. Later in 1 Peter in chapter five, Peter's going to tell us that we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion seeking to devour whomever he can. And whereas you and I might think that we'll receive mercy from the enemy when we find ourselves in difficult situations that he somehow would look at all of the struggling that we'll go, we're going through and leave us alone for a while so he can go pick on somebody else. That's not the case. In fact, it's during those times of suffering that he amps up the attack. It's during those times in which we are experiencing difficulty that all of a sudden he comes after us with discouragement, with doubt, 
with lies. And Peter says the only protection is not to hope in the mercy of an enemy who hates us, but it's to protect ourselves with a very specific attitude. Well, what are the doubts and discouragements that Satan brings in the midst of the sufferings of the righteous? Well, it's what we've been talking about. It's that question, have I missed the path? Am I doing something wrong? Is God punishing me? Does everybody else have this figured out and I have no idea what I'm doing? Those are the lies and the discouragements and the doubts that Satan assails us with when we're in the midst of struggles and suffering for trying to follow Jesus. He whispers in our ear, if you were really following Jesus, you wouldn't be going through these things. If you were really doing what was right, look at the people around you, they have no troubles. They have no stress in life. God must not love you. God must not want you to succeed. You must have missed a turn somewhere back there that if you'd taken the right turn, life would go that much easier. Peter says when Satan comes after us with those discouraging, doubting attacks, the one thing that will protect us is having the right attitude. Now in order to set up what that right attitude is, We've got to understand the dichotomy that Peter is working with under the surface. It comes out in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. What Peter is saying is there are two paths in life. One is the path of God's will. The other is the path of our own evil desires. And everybody's on one or the other of the paths. On one path, God is the one who determines how our life is going to go. On the other path, we're in charge. It's our desires that drive how life is going to go. And so Peter is setting up this attitude by saying, look, you've got to understand there is God's will, and then there are our evil desires. There is the path in which God is in charge, and God is leading us, and there is the path in which we are in charge, and we make choices about how our life is going to turn out. And with this fundamental background in mind, I think Peter wants us to make two observations about these two paths which when we do so will give us the right attitude to protect us against the doubts and discouragements that come in the midst of suffering. The first observation is this. There are two paths and not three. There are two paths in life, not three. I love the way Hebrews 11.25 says it in reference to Moses. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Two paths. 
And Moses chose the path of being mistreated with the people of God instead of the path of his own evil desires. But the point is in Hebrews 11, 20, there wasn't a third choice available to Moses. There wasn't a choice of I will choose to follow after God but have a comfortable life in the process. There's no middle ground here in which, yes, I still want God, but I don't want all the trouble that comes with being part of the people of God. I want to be well treated and experience God's pleasure at the same time. There's no third option available. You see, that third option, I think, is what the psalmist wants in Psalm 73. He doesn't really want to be wicked, but he looks at the wicked and was like, man, they've really got it good. Is there some way I can still be a follower of God and have some of that too? Is there a middle way in which I can walk through life and not feel like there are new afflictions every morning? Is there a way I can experience life in following after God and not feel like every morning a new weight is being put on top of me? Is there a third way? Is there a middle ground? Frankly speaking, this is what I think my dad wanted. The question in looking back on his life at the financial sacrifices that God asked him to make, the question is, was there not some other way? Was there not some other way? Yes, he wanted his wife and his children to learn to love Jesus, but wasn't there some way to do that without all those financial sacrifices? Was there a middle path? Was there some way to have both at the same time? It's the same question I think Jesus is asking. Remember, Peter begins, since Christ suffered in his body, He's referencing the sufferings of Jesus and perhaps he has in mind here what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was there. You remember the experience from reading about it. Jesus is pouring out his soul to the Father and what's he asking for? Is there a third way? Jesus is not going to embrace wickedness. But he's asking... Father, is there any way for your will to be accomplished without me having to go to the cross? Is there any other way? Father, is it possible that this cup could pass from me? Is it possible there's another path? Can we, can we accomplish the things we both want to accomplish without all this suffering and pain? This is what I love about Jesus in that moment. This is him at his most human. He's asking the Father, is there a third choice? That's the choice I want. It's the choice to be able to follow God, to end up in heaven, to experience the blessings of God without all the pain, without all the suffering, without all of the difficulty, without every morning waking up feeling like, here we go again. But it's in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane because if there's anybody who would have found that third way, if there's anybody to whom a third way would have been given, it would have been Jesus. 
This is the father's beloved son who had never sinned, never done anything wrong. This is the one in whom God's all his pleasure and favor rested. If there was no third way for Jesus, then there is no third option that exists. That's why Peter says, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves with the same attitude. And the attitude is this. There is no third path. It's either our own evil desires or it is the path of God's will. That's why Jesus says in the garden, Father, not my will be done, but yours. There is no third way. To follow God's will is to embrace a path of suffering. It's either that or our own evil desires. There's no middle ground in which we get God and a good life too. The second observation that I think helps us form the right attitude when we experience righteous suffering, suffering for trying to live in the right way, comes in verses three through six. And that's in the observation that the path that is the path of God's will is God's path. And I say, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Not just that it's the path in which God's will is expressed, but it's the path in which God himself is on. That's what I think verses three to six are about. He talks about, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. On the path that is human desire, evil desire, that's the path of our greed, of our selfishness. That's the path of pornography. That's the path of coveting. That's the path of laziness, of gluttony, of all of these things. And on that path, God is absent. He's not there. That's not his path. He does not inhabit that path. He does not walk down that path. He's not a part of that path at all. That path leads only to judgment, Peter says. But on this other path, the path that is the path of God's will, this is the path, last phrase of verse six, of those who live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now that's a funny phraseology, to live according to God in regard to the spirit, but essentially what it means is this is the path of life because God is present on that path through his spirit. That this is the path that God is on, that the path of suffering, the path of God's will is the path that God inhabits. He has nothing to do with that path. And when we follow the path of our own desires, when we're in charge of our life, when we decide how life is supposed to be lived, God has nothing to do with that path except judge it. But when we embrace the path that is his will, this is the path he walks with us on. This is how I think the psalmist is able to come out of the difficulty he's experiencing in Psalm 73. You can hear his attitude change as he goes through what Peter is wanting us to realize. He says, when I tried to understand all of this, it deeply troubled me. 
meaning when I tried to understand why the wicked have it so well until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. That means the path of evil desires is a path of death and judgment. But the psalmist says, when I, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. The psalmist said, I felt like an animal. I just didn't understand how life worked. And then hear the, hear the switch. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist has realized that on the path of God's will is the path that God is present. It's the path in which God comes alongside of us and takes our hand. It's the path in which he guides us with our, his counsel and leads us to glory. It's the path of life. And Peter says, arm yourself with this attitude. There are only two paths in life. It's either we live for our own desires or we live for God. There's no third way in which we get God and a comfortable life too. There are only two paths. And if you choose the path of God's will, it's the path of life. It's the path God himself walks with us down. It is the path in which God will take us by the hand, will lead us and guide us and will love us and will take us to glory. This is the path of life. It's the path of God's presence in life. What that means, if you're here this morning and you've recently become a Christian and all of a sudden life just got a lot harder, when you thought it was going to get easier? If you've been trying recently to live for Jesus at work, whereas in the past you'd been living for yourself at work and you decide you wanted to live for God and now all of a sudden things are going poorly. Instead of advancing at work, you seem to be persecuted at work. Instead of things going well, they seem to be going badly. If you're in the situation where you have decided you wanted to share the gospel with your neighbors and you've stepped out and you've tried to do that and what you've experienced is trouble on all fronts. What you need to know is you're on the right path. You've not done something wrong. You've done something right. You've not messed up and missed something. You're exactly where God wants you to be. If you've been given a difficult assignment by God, if you've been asked to walk a hard road, not because you messed up, not because of some choice you made, but simply because God assigned you that lot in life, the news that Peter's trying to say is, don't worry, don't be afraid. You're on the right path. You're on the path of life. There's not another path that you missed. There's not a wrong choice that you made. It's either the path of your own desires which leads only to death or the path of God's will which leads to life. And God wants you to be encouraged and say, don't listen to Satan. I'm with you on this path. You will never walk alone. I will take you by my right hand. I will guide you with my counsel. And don't worry. 
You're on the path that leads to eternal life. Don't be afraid. And when God shows up on that path, and maybe like in the case of my dad, he'll show up in ways in which he opens your eyes and lets you see that the sacrifices are worth it. That there wasn't another way, this was the way. Maybe like Moses, he'll give you miraculous things in your life to show you that what you've given up in Egypt is not worth being compared to what you are receiving now from God. Maybe God will give you just the right words to share with your boss as you're going through a difficult experience. Maybe God will surround you with a group of friends in the midst of what you're going through so that he can express his love and his presence to you through them because they're going through or have gone through the exact same thing you're going through. Maybe God will let you see how the suffering and sacrifices he's asking you to make is bringing about the salvation of your grandchildren. Maybe right now in the midst of this sanctuary, God is speaking a word to you and saying, don't worry, you're on the right path. Don't be afraid. Maybe this morning is the morning in which God says, look, you woke up today looking around at the, at the, at the wicked, looking around at everybody else saying, why can't my life be like theirs? Why can't my life be trouble-free? And maybe God brought you here this morning so that he could speak to you right now and say to you, you're on the right path. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. There's not another path that you missed. There's not another way to do life that you somehow have, uh, that has escaped you. I'm not punishing you. I've not picked a separate journey for you from everybody else. You're on the right path. You're going the right way. I'm with you. Listen to my voice. I'm speaking to you now because I want to encourage you. Don't be afraid. Peter says the most important thing when we suffer for doing what's right is to have the right attitude about it. And the right attitude is the realization. There aren't three paths in life, there are only two. One is the path of death, the other is the path of life. If you are following in Jesus' footsteps and living a difficult life for doing what is right, don't be afraid. You're on the right path. And Satan trying to tell you that you've done something wrong is all the more confirmation that you must be headed in the right direction.